Oh, it is an honor and a privilege to be with all of you tonight. Uh, thank you so very much for having me, Steve. Thanks for asking me to come and um, for asking some some of my favorite humans to be here this weekend. I'm so excited that I get to spend the weekend with Magdalena and my buddy Kent, who clearly has stuck me with Thursday night rather than Friday night. He is going to owe me for that. Um, and and Paul on Sunday and and uh, anyway. There's a, just an incredible lineup of people. So we're going to start with the weakest link and get her out of the way tonight. <laughs> it is an honor and a privilege anytime I'm asked to do anything for the, for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is March 15, 1987, and for that I'm incredibly grateful. You know, I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want to be here. I wasn't sure if I was alcoholic. I didn't want to hang out with 65- and 70-year-olds. I was certain that my life was over. And I was so full of shame and guilt and remorse I hadn't been able to look at myself in a mirror for a couple of years. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous absolutely restored me to wholeness and placed me into the arms of a loving God that I didn't know existed. And so for that, I will always be eternally grateful. So anytime that the program, anybody from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous says, hey, can you do this for Alcoholics Anonymous? My answer is absolutely. Let me figure that out. And um, and so I am I am here with all of you, and it's the neatest thing too, because now I, you know, every now and then I get to fly and meet incredible brand new friends in, in lovely places like this, and see the see you know my own country in a way that I'd never see seen it before. So thank you so much, Nashville, for having me here this weekend. Um, I told you that my sobriety date is March 15, 1987, and I told you that when I, was, when I came in, I didn't want to hang out with 65- and 70-year-olds. I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 15, and I've stayed sober ever since. And um, I can tell you, I was speaking at the Louisiana State Convention in 2005, right before Hurricane Katrina hit, and I gave some of those statistics when I started my talk, and in the thank the speaker line after the, after the meeting was over, at the very last guy in the thank the speaker line, he was an old guy with real white hair, and he came up and he says, you know, I did the math when you gave some of those statistics up front, and he said, I figured out you got sober at the age of 15, so I quit listening. <laughs> and I was like, dude, this is the thank the speaker line. <laughs> And he says, but God had his way with me, and I heard you anyway. <laughs> and I'll be damned if you're not a real alcoholic. <laughs> I said, yes, yes sir, I, I am. And he says, I know it. I'm going to quit ignoring those young people in my home group. I'm going to go home, pick me out one, and sponsor him. <laughs> I met that young man about a year later, and he's like, you, it is all your fault that I can't shake this old guy. <laughs> I was born and raised in a really small little farming community right, right outside of the city of Akron, Ohio. I had no idea that I was being raised in the shadow of the great Mecca for Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea that something amazing had happened there in 1935 and that it was a spiritual movement that was eventually going to save my life and restore me to wholeness. I had no idea. What I knew was that I was growing up in a tiny little town, population of about 5,000 people, where everybody came out of the hills of West Virginia when the coal mines started closing down. And th those are my people. I'm a first-generation gener hillbilly, hills removed. And... Um, <laughs> And, you know, growing up uh, in, in, a, in a culture like that where the people come straight out of the hills of, of, of the Appalachian Mountains, I was given some, a lot of basic belief systems. 
Um, since coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, I've had to take out every single one of those belief systems, hold it up to the light, and decide whether or not it was worth keeping. Every single one of them. One of the things that I've taken out and I've held up to the light and looked at it and decided that indeed it was worth keeping is that I am proud to be a citizen of the United States of America. I am deeply, deeply proud. And I'm incredibly grateful to be a citizen of the United States of America, no matter what we screw up, you know, because no, goodness knows we do sometimes. But I'm, 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 just, I'm just as patriotic as they come. You know, my dad, my dad taught me a couple of things. One of those other belief systems that I had to take and, and shine into the light was that if you, can't, if you can't afford to pay cash for it, you don't need it. You know, I was brought up with that one, and I'm so incredibly grateful I was brought up with that one because I'm pretty balanced today, and there were some opportunities for me to not be so balanced. And so that was one of those belief systems I pulled out and kept. Uh, the other one was, you know, if you, if you are going to go buy something, by God, buy American. I'm doing the best I can, people. But I was also given some basic belief systems. I had to take them out and shine them into the light, and I said, oof, that is not going to serve me well at all. You know, one of the things that I was also taught growing up in that little blue-collar family was that you're not supposed to trust anybody with money because if they had money, they made it on the backs of poor people. So you're not to trust anybody with money. And I thought, well, my goodness, why am I heading off to college then? <laughs> you know, and I mean, there are just some things that, that, that put me in basic conflict with a lot of other people in my life, and I had to discard those things. Um, anyway, I grew up in alcoholism. I grew up in active, brutal alcoholism. You know, lack of power has always been my dilemma. Always been my dilemma. I just, I just looked up here before I started speaking. I was like, oh, I got it. <laughs> I'm going to just take care of getting the theme out of the way right up front. Um, my father was my very first higher power. He was the alcoholic in our home, and, and, his, and he determined how I felt that day. He determined whether I was right, whether I was wrong. He determined whether I was happy or sad. He, re he determined whether I was, you know, scared out of my mind or able to sit comfortably. He, his mood absolutely determined everything. You know, we would, we would watch as he walked in the door after work to kind of try to read some of the signs to see whether or not we could speak out loud. Um, my dad brought it, had alcoholism probably before I was born. His father had it. My grandfather, I never met him, but he died of cirrhosis of the liver, black lung, and throat cancer. He just chased it down pretty hard and heavy and caught all of it. And, um, and so that my, and my dad comes from that system. And so I grew up in, in that system of alcoholism. And what that did for me, and I, of course, I had none of these words or any of this understanding when I was a little girl, but what it meant for me was that I was terrified all the time. I was terrified all the time because I never knew how to act right. And when you didn't act right, bad things happened to you. And I never knew how to act right. Because I would do the same thing today that I did yesterday, and yesterday it was okay, and today it's not okay anymore, and I don't have any idea what to do differently. And there are pictures of me when I'm a little girl, and my hair, my hair is up in ponytails, and my, my little shoulders are pinned to my ears, and my hands are balled up in fists, and I just look angry. Somewhere along the line that I figured out that being scared made me incredibly vulnerable, but by watching my father, I figured out that being angry made me very powerful. And so I became angry. And it took years in Alcoholics Anonymous to pull that off. It took years in Alcoholics Anonymous to peel that onion and be okay looking at the fear. But when you looked at my pictures from when I'm a little girl, I looked angry. And by God, I was. And I, I ruled my entire neighborhood. I had a little posse. 
nobody did anything in my neighborhood without clearing it through me first. I have no idea what I would have done if somebody would have stopped and challenged me, but I just acted as if that was not a good idea. And so you just didn't. If there was a dance routine being made up, I was choreographing. You know, every year we had a lot of snow where, <laughs> where I lived, and every year we would make a new sledding run down through the houses and over the garages and all that stuff. And I was the one who had to approve the route. I mean, you know, I, I had that neighborhood locked down because, by God, I was going to control something. I tried to control lots of things. I was not very successful, but I was successful in controlling the other little people in my neighborhood. You know, there's a report card that my, <laughs> my mom had kept, and it was from second grade, and it said, Deb is a natural-born leader. We would just like her to use her powers for good. <laughs> I was in second grade. I wanted to know what that stuff was in those dark little bottles that were so darned important. I wanted to know what it was. My dad would come home from work in the afternoon um, at 3.45, and he would have a 12-pack of these tiny little bottles. He drank Stroh's beer. Then he would come in, he'd sit down, and he'd drink all 12 of those, and in the evening he'd go back through the beverage drive-thru and get six more, and then he'd pass out at some point through the night. And I wanted to know what that stuff was because it was incredibly important to him that he have lots of it, and it was incredibly important to my ma that he have none of it. You can see the basic conflict in my house, can't you? Whew. And so I just want to know what that stuff was. And I'm, I'm a person, if I don't understand something, I'm going to ask you to explain it to me. And when I would ask what that stuff was, all I was ever told was that stuff's for adults and you don't need to worry about it. And I'd walk away thinking, don't worry about it. It's running everything, man. Everything. But nobody would tell me exactly what it was or why it was so important or why it was such a point of contention or anything like that. And still today, if I walk up to you this weekend and if I ask you a question, please try to answer me. Because if you don't, I'm going to go do research. <laughs> and my research, as we're about to find out, does not always serve me well. When I was nine years old, I had a little girlfriend and her parents had a bar in their basement and they had lots of those dark little bottles. And I talked her into sleeping down in that bar when I spent the night one night and I talked her into drinking with me. I just wanted to know what that stuff was. I really did. I was trying to figure out what in the world was going on. I was trying to figure out how to act right, how to fit in. I was a square peg in a round hole, and I was just beating myself into it over and over and over. You know, I wanted to be a daddy's girl, but he didn't have room in his heart for me, and I didn't understand why. I knew something was standing in the way, but I didn't know what it was. Because every day I would try a new tactic, and none of it worked. And the only thing that seemed to be important were those dark little bottles. So I went down in that bar that night, and she and I started picking, stick, picking bottles off the bar and just taking the tops off and taking a swig right down and seeing if we, if we could actually swallow it because, man, most of that stuff was awful. The first bottle I picked off the bar was a bottle of Christian Brothers. At the time, they had little pilgrims on the labels. I was nine. Pilgrims made sense to me. I was a pilgrim in the school play. And I used to say that it was Christian Brothers whiskey, and I was telling this story one night, and Sister Maurice was sitting in the audience, and you know, in the middle of my talk, she rears back and says, Honey, that was brandy. I was like, Well, leave it to the religious to know their booze. <laughs> anyway, that was a night of first for me. You know, It was my first drink. It was my first drunk. It was my first blackout. The next day was my first hangover. I mean, I absolutely hit the ground running. And it was also the very first time that I remember feeling utter, complete 
overwhelming, God-given relief. I mean relief. My shoulders came off my ears. My hands let loose. I exhaled all the way. And I didn't worry about how I acted. I didn't worry about what I was saying. I didn't have to watch her to see if she was going to accept it. I didn't have to look around to see if I was going to get belted for what I just did. None of that. It all melted away. And I just exhaled. And the next day when I came to, there was a part of me that was terrified about what had happened the night before because of the blackout and I was so sick when I came to the next day. And there was a part of me that was like, holy Christmas, that stuff rocks. I get it. I understand why he drinks that stuff. I get it. And I thought, for the love of God, my ma, she just needs a drink. (laughs) Oh, man, if she would just take a drink, they would get along. He wouldn't be so mad all the time. He wouldn't beat us like he does. Everybody could just exhale. If my ma, because she's wound tight. Man, was she wound tight. I got all of my controlling skills from watching her. It was impressive. (laughs) Impressive. And the next day when I came to, I remember like it was yesterday. Only an alcoholic would say this. I decided that I was going to drink as much of that stuff as often as I could because I wanted to feel like that as often as possible. Only alcoholics say that kind of crap out loud. I can guarantee you that my little girlfriend, her name was Tammy, she doesn't even remember that night. Her family, they had a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about alcohol. They had a bar in their basement. They seldom used it, and when they did, they drank a little bit. Everybody, you know, laughed a little bit louder and danced, and they had a great time, and nobody got hurt, and everybody went home, and it just wasn't a big deal. I would probably ask her about that night right now, and she wouldn't even remember it. But I remember it like it was yesterday. And I took off from there, and I, and I chased alcohol down at every single turn. I started evaluating, reevaluating all the relationships in my life based on whether or not you would increase or decrease my access to alcohol. All of my, all of my little girlfriends, if your parents had a bar, you were in my inner circle. <laughs> if you had older siblings that would get drunk and leave booze around that we could steal, you were inner circle, outer ring. I had a system for evaluation. And if you came from teetotalers, I would hang out with you at school if I had to. But other than that, we weren't spending any extracurricular time together because I couldn't, I couldn't use that relationship with you to get next to the thing that let me feel okay. By the time I'm 15 years old, I'm drinking the clock round. For me to draw a sober breath means that I have to go through a purposeful period of detox and it hurts. It physically hurts to get sober. It physically hurts to be sober. Mentally, I'm a mess. Emotionally, i got no idea whether I'm coming or going. I can't sleep. The only sleep I'm getting is when I'm drinking to oblivion and I pass out. God, I love to drink till I passed out. It was the only rest I ever got. And when I was sober and closed my eyes, all I would see were the faces of people that I had harmed or or who had harmed me. 
And it was a constant merry-go-round, and it never stopped. You see, in order to be a 14-year-old and, be, and, and drink a, a fifth of vodka all by myself every single day because I needed it, I had to go hang out with people who had no moral character left. I had to hang out with people who thought, who had justified their way into believing that it was okay. I had to hang out with people who didn't ask any questions because they really didn't want to know the answers. There was a dark little house on the wrong side of the tracks, and that's where people, they would move to our little town, and they would stay over in that neighborhood when they needed to get off the radar. And there was a reason that they needed to get off the radar. And I lived on the first block on the right side of the tracks, so you could see the wrong side of the tracks from my yard. And I knew where I needed to go when I got thirsty. And the longer I drank, the thirstier I got. You see, I have alcoholism. I didn't know I had alcoholism at the time, but I have alcoholism. And what that means is very, very simple. It describes it in incredible, in incredible, merciful detail in the doctor's opinion in the very front of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it, and it tells me that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. It explains to me what happens when I take a drink of alcohol. You see, because if I had, if I had to qualify to hang out with you this evening based on the number of arrests I've had, the number of cars I wrecked, the number of ex-husbands I've had, the number of kids that I've had and neglected. If, if that's how I had to qualify to hang out with you all tonight as a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'd have a different speaker. But in the doctor's opinion, it, it, it asks a very, some very, very simple questions. And to put it into my words, words that I understand, that were given to me by members of Alcoholics Anonymous, when you drink, what happens? And what I can tell you is that when I drink, the more I drink, the thirstier I get. When I drink, the phenomenon of, of craving is triggered, and there's nothing I can do about that. The more I drink, the thirstier I get. And I do not stop drinking until something else gets in my way. And when I don't have anything to drink, the only thing I can think about is how, is how to structure my life to get to that next drink. How to fix the consequences from when I was drinking, how to get to the next drink. That's all I can think about. Of course, my life is unmanageable. I can't process any other information. My life is about getting to it, consuming it, trying to stay safe, recovering from it. And you're going to have to get in my way if I'm ever going to get sober. I have alcoholism. And it took me down fast. And it held my head underwater. And, it, and at some point, I was okay with that because I was really tired. I was really tired. I ended up in a treatment center in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I, I, essentially, I finally got caught. That's all that was. I finally got caught. I ended up in a treatment center in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I had talked my way into that treatment center because I needed to get out of town because there were some warrants out for the arrest of some of the people that were off the radar and my behavior put them on the radar. That's never a good thing. So I needed to get out of town, and so I went in. They had this 10-day inpatient adolescent assessment program. And so I went into this treatment center in downtown Cleveland. I tried to drink myself to death for two weeks prior to going into that treatment center because I really wasn't interested in getting sober. I knew how hard it was to get sober. I knew how much it hurt to be sober, and I really wasn't all that interested. 
But I walked into that treatment center on the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1986, and I didn't come to until Monday night. And that treatment center at that time did not believe that adolescents were real alcoholics either, and so they didn't put me through a medical detox. I had, I had been drinking daily for months, unable to draw a sober breath. And they just put me in a pair of pajamas in a room where everything was bolted to the floor and, and, and let me do it on my own. I came to Monday evening, and it took me the rest of that 10-day period just to be constitutionally capable of standing up, putting on my own clothes, and keeping a little bit of food down. And see, I had a plan. When I went into that treatment center, what I was going to tell them, was, which was the lie I was telling every other person in my life who wanted to know what in the world was going on with me, I told them that I'd had a little something to drink a couple of times and it hadn't been going very well, which is why I was going away for an assessment, because everybody knew that my father was really a righteous alcoholic. And so they knew that I would set up for you know possible alcoholism because of the genetics and blah, blah, blah. And when I went into this treatment center, what I was going to tell them was going to be the lie, which is that I've had a little something to drink a couple of times and it's not going very well. And I was going to shoot that angle. I'm 15 years old. I'm high drama and I am always making plans, which is never a good combination. I mean, think about the 15 year olds that you know who don't have alcoholism. (laughs) Do you really want them making substantial plans? I don't think so. You add alcoholism on top of it, and I got, I got no abilities, but I think I do. I come to on Monday night, and what I had done was I had completed that assessment when I got there, and I had done all of that in a blackout. And instead of telling them I had had a little something to drink a couple of times, I told them the truth. And the truth was I was drinking around the clock. I was hanging out with people who scared me. I was hanging out with people who hurt me, and I didn't know how to, and I didn't know how to get out of that cycle. So by the time I came to in that treatment center, I already had a chart created and the little stamp on the front of it said alcoholic, which meant that I had just bought myself some extra time in their inpatient program. You see, there was a girl in my high school who had gone to that 10-day program. They assessed her for 10 days and they let her out, told her parents that they had overreacted. (laughs) That was my goal. I wanted to go in 10 days and tell everybody that they're overreacting. Everybody just calm down. And now I'm going to come back out and start over again. I'm going to, you know, watch my P's and Q's a little bit. I'm going to choose some new people to drink with because clearly those people aren't serving me very well. I'm got, you know, I just needed a little break. I was just going to get out and hit reset. And then I went in there in a blackout and told them the truth. So they give me my clothes. They send me downstairs to start my treatment program. Now I'm 10 days completely physically sober. And I am miserable. I got no God. I got no relief. I got no desire to be sober. I can't sleep. I can't look in the mirror. I am full of absolute, unadulterated shame, guilt, and remorse. I don't want it. But I'm in this treatment center, and they lock the doors, and I can't get out of there. And I am really unhappy. I have a sister, She's a, she is not quite a full two years older than me, and she and I, we look alike, and clearly our mannerisms are alike, and she and I, we were running together, <laughs> oh man, were we good running buddies, and I drank and she did drugs, that way there was no conflict of interest in the house, <laughs> and we hung out in the same places with the same kind of people, and we were just absolutely off the hook, and it, 
When I went downstairs to start my treatment program, all the counselors, they had called a code and they were loosening their ties and rolling up their sleeves and they were heading back up to the unit I had just come from, back up to the assessment unit. And I grabbed one of them and I said, what in the world's going on? And they said, your sister's here. (laughs) It seems as if I had also gotten honest about what she was doing. To say she was a little unhappy with me, we call that a Midwestern understatement where I'm from. (laughs) Ten days later, my sister comes down to start her treatment because before they had even met her, she had a chart that had drug addicts stamped on the front of it based on information supplied by me. So my sister comes down ten days later to start her treatment program, and I'm so incredibly happy to see her because I am now 20 whole freaking days completely sober. Sober. Can you imagine it? Sober. I don't want to be sober. I got no interest in being sober. My shoulders, they are pinned to my ears. My hands, they are balled up in fists. And I am looking for a way out. I am scouting for the keys to those darn doors. And I'm going to figure this out. Because here's the deal. I need some freaking relief. And I need it now. And you know what they're doing in treatment? They're talking. (laughs) They're talking. Lectures, group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy. They're talking. And then members of AA would bring meetings in. And you know what they would do? Talk. I'm like, for the love of God, shut up. People, shh. I just need some relief. And you're talking? That's not helping. It's not helping. I just want to drink. If you felt the way I felt, you would understand. Just let me out of here. I just need a little something. I'm not going to drink like I was drinking before. I'm not going to cross the tracks. I'm not going to drink the entire fifth. Clearly, that was a bad idea. I got it. I got it. I'm just going to have a couple for the... Just let me out of here. I don't want to be sober. I don't have what it takes to be sober. And if you would just kindly shut up. So that bought me an extra 10 days in treatment. They were fairly certain that my experience was going to count against their success numbers. (sighs) When I was leaving treatment, when they finally mercifully was letting, they were letting me out of treatment, I still didn't want to be sober. My sister caught me, (laughs) my sister had come down after her 10 days and I ran up to her, I was so excited to see her. And I was ready to welcome her to the treatment and I was going to, you know, tell her how we were going to work this place over and run these scams and get out of here so we can go get a little something out on the streets of Cleveland, and uh, when I ran up to her, she just looked at me and she said, don't go to sleep. (laughs) Ooh, was she mad. So I didn't sleep for the last 20 days in treatment. I was wide awake. Not that I was sleeping much anyway. And when I was leaving that treatment center, my sister came up and grabbed me before I got on the elevator, and she said, I have another 10 days left in this hole because of you. You will not be out there relapsing without me. You will wait until I get out of here. 
you go get my stuff and you go get your bottles, but you wait to relapse. This is all your fault. I said, fine, fine. I have no idea why. But I got out of that treatment center. I got my bottles. I got her some random baggies full of whatever it was. I put all of it underneath the floorboard, which was our stash, and I waited for 10 days. 10 days. No relief, no God, no program, no desire to be sober, nothing. But I wait on my sister to get out of treatment before I drink again. And when she, when she comes rolling in the driveway, I go out car side, I meet her, I take her upstairs, I lift the floorboard, I show her the stash, and I'm like, it's on tonight, thank God you're home. And she said, well, they called it a spiritual experience. I said, they called it what? She said, it was a spiritual experience. I said, who? She said, the counselors, they said it was a spiritual experience. We have to try to be sober. I said, no. (laughs) No, we don't. And she said, yeah, yeah, we're going to try to be sober. I said, why? She said, because I think we're supposed to. She said, we're going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't even drink. She said, I know, but they said N.A. sucks. I have to go to A.A. So here's how we went to AA. My ma would drop us off. Okay, my cool card officially gone at this point. My ma drops us off 15 minutes before the meetings to start. We stand outside. We bum cigarettes. I don't smoke, but I learn. We stay outside long enough so that we're late getting into every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At least five minutes. I preferred ten. We would walk in the door. Coffee was on the opposite side of the room. We would walk through the center of the room, making as much noise as possible, get my coffee, go sit in the back, write notes, try to get dates, would drag my metal folding chair across the concrete floors, because they were all in church basements, just so they'd clatter, make a lot of noise. I didn't even like coffee, but I had three cups at every meeting, up, down, up, down, up, down. And you people, you pray a lot. I was not raised in church I was not raised with a God and I don't know how to pray thank you very much so I am not getting in your stupid circle okay no circle so when you people would start to start to circle up I paid attention I got to know your rhythm when you would start to circle up I would slide down the back wall to the exit door and I would slide out because I didn't know the words of the Lord's Prayer And you weren't going to pull my punk card like that. (sighs) Did I mention I was going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in Akron? They take their AA a little seriously there. (laughs) The president of Alcoholics Anonymous, his name was Mac Shadburn. Mac had been sober since Christ was a child. And his post was by the entry and the exit door that happened to be in the back corner of the room. He and his guys would sit right back there because they were also the greeters. They were kind of an old-fashioned sniffing gauntlet. 
Because when you would walk into the room, if your eyes didn't look quite right, they'd shake your hand, they'd pull you in real close, and they'd go... (laughs) And if you didn't smell quite right, they took you into the side room. I didn't know what happened in the side room, but I was never going into the side room to figure it out. I'd have to walk in every now and then when I would accidentally come in on time. And the queen of Alcoholics Anonymous, her name was Jane. And Jane had been sober about as long as Mac. She was 73 years old. She had white hair. It was always pulled back in a lovely bun. She smoked cigarettes on an extender. When she came, she got the only crystal ashtray in the whole place. You remember the ashtrays we used to have to use? They were the metal ones, and after you put your cigarettes, the bottoms got wavy. She had the only crystal ashtray in the whole joint, and it was hers. And when she would come to the meeting, they would pull in. She had a parking place that no one ever parked in except whoever was driving Jane to the meeting. They'd come rolling in. Somebody would yell out, Jane's here. They would go get her high-backed wooden chair. There was only one of them. They would take it out car side, load her in it, and carry her down the stairs through the basement. She would wave like the Pope moving through the mall. They would set her right up front, right here by the podium where this lovely lady is sitting. She'd smoke her cigarettes on extenders. And everybody would get up and they would come to greet her, even if they had already been there for 30 minutes. People would stand in line to say hello to her and hug her neck. And she knew all of them by name. And she knew really important things about their lives. And they just had such lovely exchanges back and forth. And I hated her. (laughs) I never went to that corner of the room. I wasn't interested. And I certainly wasn't going to wait in her line. Thank you very much. One night, you guys, I can feel it, you guys are starting to get ready to circle up. And I get up and I'm sliding down the back wall. I've been sober for like four months. I know, right? Have you ever been sober for four months when you didn't want to be? Oh, man, that's hard work. I am sober for like four months. And you people are circling up, and I'm sliding down the back wall, and I'm looking this way and sliding that way, and I bumped into something. And guess who it was? Max Shadburn. He's standing in front of the exit door like this. He wore these tiny little glasses set way down on his nose. I'm not even sure what the purpose was for them, because he always talked to you right over top of them. He looked at me over top of those glasses with his arms folded, and he said, get in the circle. (laughs) So I got in the circle. And as soon as the prayer was done, I was back to that door. And guess who had not gotten in the circle? Mac. He was still standing right where he was when he put me in the circle. And he just looked at me over top of those glasses, and he said, are you alcoholic? Well, I'm diagnosed with alcoholism. I'm sorry, with chemical dependency. They taught me how to say it. I'm Deb, I'm an alcoholic. Everybody tells me I'm alcoholic. They said, by God, people who drink like you, surely you're alcoholic. But I didn't know if I was alcoholic. So I gave them the only answer that I had. 
And he looked at me over top of those glasses and he said, can you control your drinking? And I thought, now you people, you are obsessed with controlling your drinking. You are. You talk about it in meetings. Have a first step meeting. Let's talk about how we try to control our drinking. And the entire time you're talking about controlling your drinking, I'm thinking, who wants to control their drinking? I mean, what are you going to do? Drink too just to take the edge off and stop right there? What's the point of that? What's the point of that? Like that's going to give you any relief? I drink to oblivion. How am I going to control my drinking and drink to oblivion? I don't think that those two things go together. I have this whole conversation in my mind, and then I give him the only answer that I can give him. He handed me five bucks. He said, here's five bucks. Go find out. We are tired of you treating Alcoholics Anonymous like a joke. If you can control your drinking, I never want to see you again. If you can't control your drinking, you get back here. But you better be ready to do some things differently. And I went and I got my sister and I'm like, go get your five bucks. We're out of here. (laughs) It's all I had wanted was somebody with some authority to tell me I could go drink. I had a formula. I was going to try out this controlled drinking thing because it seems to be so incredibly important to you people. I'm going to have three shots and two beers. To me, that's moderate drinking. To those of you in Al-Anon, I'm sure that you're holding your breath right now. It's a good thing it's Al-Anon participation. You need to learn a little something about us. Three shots and two beers. I go out that night and I have those and I drink them really fast. Because if you know anything about consuming alcohol, the faster you drink it, the faster the relief comes. So I have three shots of two beers, drink it real fast, and I sit there and I wait for it to hit. And it finally hits. But it doesn't do everything I need it to do. My shoulders do come off my ears, but they just come down a little ways. And I think, I think my equation was just a little off. (laughs) Just a little off. I'm not crossing the tracks. I'm not going there. I just think my equation was a little off. So I have another shot and another beer and another shot, and another beer, and another shot, right out of the neck of the bottle. And guess where I ended up? Crossing the tracks. What I don't understand yet is that the more I drink, the thirstier I get, and it's never going to be any different for me. It's never going to be any different for me. You see, I don't get to choose how I drink I don't get to choose whether or not I do drink. Once I start, it's on. And if you don't get in my way, I'm just going to keep right on going. And there is no stopping. And that night, there was no stopping. I came to the next day out of a merciful blackout. And I am beat up. And I'm filthy. And I'm sick. And I look in the mirror for the first time. And I heard Max Shadburn's voice in my head. God love that man. And he said, if it doesn't work, you get back here. And there was a little bit of truth slipped in between all of my lies and sat right down in the center of my soul. And what it sounded like was this. You are young. You are otherwise healthy. 
And this is the way you're going to drink for a very long time. And I was tired. I walked back into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. That was March 15, 1987. I got there on time. I sat in the middle. And I only had one cup of coffee. And when you guys were getting ready to circle up, I got in your stupid circle. And as soon as you guys said amen, I made for the door. And guess who was standing in the door? He looked at me over top of those <laughs> over the top of those glasses and he said, "Did you get a sponsor?" <laughs> no. He said, "You get a sponsor before you leave this room." And he used this finger and just went like this. <laughs> I walked up to every woman in that room and I said, "Will you sponsor me?" And every woman in that room said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, honey, uh-uh. <laughs> so I went to leave the room, and Mac, of course, had not moved a muscle. And he said, well, did you get a sponsor? And I said, no one in here will sponsor me. He said, that's a lie. I said, I'm not asking her. <laughs> he said, oh, yes, you are. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. And he used that finger. So I went up front. I got in line. And when it was my turn, I looked down at her and I said, will you sponsor me? And she took a drag off that cigarette extender and, and she said, honey, why should I? And instead of telling her where to shove that cigarette extender, which was my only plan, what came out of my mouth was, because I need to be sober and I don't know how. And I thought, who said that? <laughs> and she said, well, I guess you'll be doing some things differently now, won't you? And she gave me my list. My list of how I was going to act in Alcoholics Anonymous, how I was not going to act in Alcoholics Anonymous, how many pages I was going to read of the book, how many meetings I was going to a week, on and on and on. And I left that meeting and I laid awake all night contemplating how my life was over and how I just turned it over to 70-year-olds. <laughs> and the next day I'm sitting at home after school and I'm doing some homework. I'd been drinking a lot, so I had a lot of homework to catch up on. And I'm doing my homework and all of a sudden there's this car that pulls into the driveway. You guys remember the old Ford LTDs from the 70s? Do you remember how freaking big those things are? They had steering wheels that were like this big around and you could steer them with one finger. And when you wanted to make a right-hand turn, you had to stop, a, start a half a block back. You know, and they would get up to the corner, and then they would kind of consider it, and they would float around the corner. And when they came to a stop, like the car, the body was too big for the chassis or something, because when you would stop the cars, they would kind of go like this. You guys remember those cars? Well, one of those cars comes floating into my driveway at 7 o'clock and comes to a stop. And my mom says, who's that? I said, I don't know, I'll go find out. So I went outside, knocked on the window, two old guys sitting in the front seat, they roll down the window, they're smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, laughing at something, country western music's playing in the front seat. And I said, can I help you? And they said, Jane sent us, get in the car. <laughs> 
I said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I went to a meeting last night. I'm fine. And they just looked at us and they said, Jane sent us. Get in the car. And I was like, oh. I walked in the house. I was like, Ma, he's here. And she said, okay, honey, have fun. So I go and I get in the back seat of this great big old Ford LTD, and you can fit 12 newcomers in the back seat. And I'm sitting in the back seat of this car, and I'm like, what in the world is going on with my life? We go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Barberton, Ohio, which is right outside of Akron, and it's at St. Anne's Catholic Church, and we roll in there, and we get there about 7 o'clock. What I don't know is that, or I get, we get there about 7.30. The meeting doesn't start till 8.30. And I'm thinking, why in the world are we here? Well, we have to set up the meeting. So they teach me how to make coffee in a pot that's as tall as I am, and we're setting up these tables and chairs, and then these people come in, and then they talk for, for the love of God, they talk for like an hour and a half. And I don't understand anything they're saying. Not that I'm paying a lot of attention, but I'm paying a little bit more attention than I used to pay. But I don't understand anything they're just saying, and the meeting is finally over. I get back in the Ford LTD, and I'm like, whew, I'm glad this is over. And all of a sudden, they don't take me home. Do you know where they take me? To the donut shop. <laughs> after meetings in Northeast Ohio, you don't get to go home after the meeting. You have to go to the freaking donut shop. And you know what you do at the donut shop after the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous? You talk. And you know what you talk about? Everything you just talked about at the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So not only do I not understand it the first time, but they feel a need to reiterate it all to me a second time. Like I'm stupid or something. Come to find out, I have a Monday crew, a Tuesday crew, a Wednesday crew, a Thursday crew. There is an enormous vehicle sitting in my driveway every night of the week at 7 o'clock waiting for me to get in the car. And I argue and I fuss and I do everything I can to get out of getting in the car. But I got to get in the car. What I didn't know is that they had held a group conscience meeting. And they said, for the love of God, they're ruining Alcoholics Anonymous. What are we going to do with them? And Max said, we're going to throw them out. They're too young to be alcoholic anyway. They've got to get out of here. They're absolutely, they're just a complete and utter disruption. And they had the, most of the room going for it. Everybody was rallying behind, just get rid of them. And for those of you in service, you'll like this. Then there was the minority voice in the room. And it was a man, it belonged to Bill Long. And Bill Long was really old. And Bill Long never talked. He was sitting in the back of the room, and he talked that night, and he said out loud, Well, the way I see it is God gave them to us, so they're our responsibility. And he changed the course of the group conscience. And they said, well, okay, but we're going to have to have a plan because we cannot have them running amok like they've been running amok. And they said, well, I think it's still okay for you to go ahead and throw them out. It's in the big book. Send them down to the nearest bar room. Let them try a little controlled drinking. And if it doesn't work, they can come back. All right. So Max still got to throw us out, which made him happy. And they said, but then what happens if they come back? Who's going to sponsor them? And another old guy in the room he said, I've been watching them a little, and I have a feeling that these girls are real badly damaged by somebody. 
and the only people that they're like to, likely to listen to are us old folks with white hair. And they all looked at Jane. <laughs> and Jane said, I don't have the energy to, to sponsor those girls. And they said, well, you're going to have to lead the charge and the rest of us will have to help. And so they divided up the week. And they divided up the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they divided up the pages in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they got busy saving my life. Day after day after day, somebody was in my driveway waiting for me to just get in the car. And I can't stand here and tell you that, it was, that I was three months sober or that I was four months sober when I stopped hoping that they wouldn't show up. And I started watching for them to come. But it happened, and it happened pretty darn quick. And I didn't get sober in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober in donut shops across northeast Ohio (laughs) with members of Alcoholics Anonymous who took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous page by page, line by line. And when it said, do this, I did it. And they would tell me their stories sitting at those donut shops. They would tell me their stories of their deterioration and then of their restoration. And they would tell me how they had established and how they maintained a relationship with God. How they believed that they were completely and utterly forgiven. And I would listen to their stories. And some of them acted, they acted worse than I did. Because I was pretty sure that if there was a God, he wasn't interested in me. Because I was too bad. I was too dirty. I had done too much wrong. I had taken every good opportunity and done something to screw it up. And that there was no way he was going to give me another shot. And then I listened to their stories in those donut shops. And I thought, oh my God. Well, if that's true for them... Maybe, just maybe, it could be true for me too. And there was one of the guys who was part of my God squad. And every time I would take him, these overwhelming problems that I had, because, you know, 15, 16, everything's overwhelming, I would take all my problems to the donut shop. And every single time I would tell him one of my problems, he had the same damn answer. Did you pray about it? Did you pray about it? You probably ought to pray about that. Let me talk to God about that one. And finally, one night, I looked at him. He said, why don't you pray about that? And I looked at him, and I finally said out loud, I don't know how. He said, give me your book. So I slid my book across the table. He opened it up, and he started underlining and highlighting every one of those little prayers throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He closed it up. He slid it back, and he said, pick one and try it. (laughs) On your knees. I said, fine. So I got on my knees, I opened up that big book, I found the shortest prayer that I could find, and I had to pray with one eye because I had to read them. (laughs) And little by slow, my problems started taking care of themselves. And when I would go back to report into the donut shop about how everything was being restored or reformed, I would tell them about how I had done this or that. (laughs) That didn't go very far. And what they did was they introduced me to the idea that I could have a relationship with a God who was big enough, who was big enough 
to not only love me, to not only have feelings of love for me, but to care for me, to like get directly involved in my life and bring the best out of something that I didn't think was so great and who would stay in my corner and fight for me no matter what happened and who would forgive me all of it even the stuff that I withheld on my four-step. <laughs> All of it. And I got onto the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started to take action on that little thread of belief. And when I left there at two and a half years sober to go away to college, I had a solid relationship with a God of my understanding that was little snippets of all of the gods that I have, of all of the the um, concepts of God that I had been introduced to at the donut shop. You see, I got to sit after meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this one night will always stand out to me. My buddy Danny, who was sober thirty some years and he was Amish, was arguing about God with a man who had a rock for a higher power. <laughs> That's some impressive stuff right there. And I remember sitting there watching them, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that highway really is broad, roomy, and all-inclusive. <laughs> Maybe there's room for me. Maybe there's room for me. It was time to, for me to launch out of there. I had finally <laughs> graduated from high school. Um, Jane and Mac had both died. I was a year and a half sober, and they, had both, they were both dying of lung cancer, actually, when, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why Jane didn't have the energy to sponsor us all by herself. Um, and I got to be of service to their families after their passing. I was taught how to do that. You know, I remember one night I, I, they sent me over to Mac's wife's, you know, to, to Mac's house, and, um, and I'd never been over to his house before, and I knocked on the door, and, and you know, his wife answered the phone, and she said, Honey, can I help you? And I said, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my sponsor sent me over here to do something really nice. <laughs> and she said, Okay, what, what can you do? I said, ma'am, I really don't know. The only thing I know how to do is make coffee. <laughs> and she said, well, honey, there's the coffee pot, and I got some folks coming over, so maybe you could just keep the coffee pot full. I said, yes, ma'am. And I went and I sat by the coffee pot for a couple of hours, and I made sure that the coffee pot stayed full while they began grieving the loss of their husband and my friend. So we, I, they said, you know, I was going to stay right there in that little town. I was going to get a job in one of those factories that everybody got jobs in because they were all just blue-collar factory guys, most of them union, some not. And I was just going to get one of those jobs. I figured they could get me in, and I was going to get me a factory job. And, and they said, what in the world are you talking about? You're not getting a factory job? And I said, why not? It's good enough for you guys. It's good enough for me. And they said, no, 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 you're too smart. You're going to go off to college. And I said, well, I... Okay, but I like it here. I like hanging out with you guys. And they said, you can't hang out with us for the rest of your life, little one. You've got to go. You've got to go to college. And I said, I don't know how to go to college. And they said, well, we don't either. But get all those forms from the guidance counselor and bring them to the donut shop. <laughs> I said, all right, fine. So I went and I got all these forms from the guidance counselor and took them to the donut shop. And we sat there at the donut shop. And, <laughs> and one of the guys, I remember he just looked at me and he says, he's filling out all these forms and what's your address? And I'm giving it to him. And he goes, okay. He's like, we get to my financial aid forms because I'm going to need a lot of it. And he says, well, he says, how much money does your mother make? I said, well, heck, I don't know. And he goes, well, it can't be much. 
and we fill out all these forms, and I fill out applications for college, and I go take these tests. I don't study for them because I'm not all that interested in leaving these people because it's the first time that I felt this genuine love and acceptance. So I wasn't really interested in going that far. And I filled out all this stuff, and I got accepted to this college, the only one that I really wanted to go to, and it was two hours away. They wouldn't let me go more than two hours away from home because they wanted to keep an eye on me. And I went down, and, I, and they taught me how to move in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they, they, they taught me how to use that incredible foundation that, that they had put me on. And I moved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not stopped since. I'm 27 years sober. I have moved 10 times in 27 years. When people say, so, where are you from? I go, um, my stuff and my cat is in Southern California. <laughs> but right now I work in Las Vegas. And my heart is here. I mean, I'm just, I'm, compl- I'm all over the place. And so what I can tell you is that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a member of all of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I move a lot. I know how to get into a new town, go to lots and lots of meetings, find a home group right away, find women to sponsor, and get busy and get into the middle of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, get into the middle of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous by helping to put people onto the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my God has grown along with me. Everywhere I've gone, he's gone. And, and I have had these incredible moments in my sobriety where I have hit that wall, and it's like you're either going to grow or you're going to go. You're either going to courageously do the things I'm asking you to do and deepen your relationship with me, or you're going to start walking backwards. And so spiritually, I have, had to, I have had to absolutely deepen all of my efforts and go boldly and follow God. I have had to actually use the faith that I say I have and step out on it and do the next right thing. And it's been an incredible journey. You know, I, I had given every single area of my life to God, every single area of my life to God. I'd just given it to him except one. I kept boys for my very own. I was fairly certain that God did not know what handsome was, so I was going to take care of that. Thank you very much. And my life looked like I was taking care of it. Thank you very much. I was married and divorced in AA. If you're bored at your home group, I suggest somebody do that. Uh, it will get all of you talking. It just, you know, makes your blood flow. Um, I had, but I've been in and out of lots and lots of relationships, you know, always with, you know, always with another him. And, um, and every single time one of them would end, it was time for me to grow deeper in my relationship with God. And every single time something would end, God would come to me and say, why don't you give this to me too? And I would say, no, 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 I got it. I got it. This one was better than the last one. We're doing better. I'm good. <laughs> and, then I, and, then I, and then I met him. His name was Lee. He was six foot one. He was bald-headed, had blue eyes. He was a major in the United States Marine Corps infantry officer. And, oh, man, handsome, handsome, handsome. Rode Harleys together, golfed together. I mean, he was awesome. He had no relationship with God, but that's okay. I'm spiritual enough for both of us. You laugh as if you understand. <laughs> so, I, so I keep all of that to myself, and, and, and I am in love. I head over heels in love with this guy, and he's head over heels in love with me. He adores me. It's the first time that I've really been adored on that level, and I'm thinking, man, we got this going on. And, I, and, and God is coming to me now every single day, and he is... I want the rest. And what I'm hearing in my meditation is that I have perfect love to give you and you continue to block me. Why do you do that? You say you have faith in me, but you don't trust me with this part of your life. I have perfect love to give you and you continue to block me. Why do you keep me out? Have I not cared for you in every other way? 
Have I not cared for you in every other way? Why do you keep that part of your life away from me? You see, what I figured out is that surrender is a process, not an event. And for me, it doesn't end. It doesn't end. The closer I get to God, the stronger my ego fights to get me back. It does not end. I must surrender over and over and over. And I go home from that Louisiana State Convention I was talking about earlier with the white-headed guy who's sponsoring young people now. I go home from that event. At that event on Sunday morning, a dear, dear friend of mine from Houston, Texas was talking. He told me on Thursday when I met him originally, his name is Walter Hall. He's sober 40 years today. Today. It's 40 years. He told me on Thursday when I met him at that conference, he said, you know, he said, I'm always really sent here just for one person. He said, and I have a feeling I've been sent here for you. And I was like, well, I'm a speaker. I'm good. I got this. You see, because when I gave up the insanity of, of, of my drinking alcoholism, I picked up the insanity of self-reliance. I hauled that one around a lot. And I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm good. My life is great. I got, you know, I got a great job. I got all this education. You know, I had, I had just graduated with my master's degree. I'm just knocking it out of the park. And I got this handsome, bald-headed guy at home. I am good. And he was like, uh, yeah, okay, but I think I'm here for you. And God has been coming to me in meditation, telling me over and over and over, please give me this area of your life. Why don't you trust me with this area of your life? And, he, and God did not let me sleep at all that weekend. The only place I was comfortable when I was on my knees in meditation, and I didn't want to be on my knees in meditation because it was God over and over and over saying the same thing over and over and over. Come to me, give me this area of your life. And I cried all the way through my talk on that Saturday. I didn't know what was happening to me, but I felt like I was coming apart at the seams because every single time I try to resist, resist God's will, every time I fight against it, I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams because God lives inside me. And when he wants something from me, he gets restless and I get restless. And Walter got up that Sunday morning and he put the healing on me (laughs) like only a Baptist from Texas can do. And I and I absolutely broke down and I and I wept. I wept from my toes all the way out, and I thought, oh, my God, I hear you. My God, I hear you. I went home. I sat down with Lee, and I told him, I said, look, I have to be in a relationship with a man who loves God the way I love God, and you don't have any relationship with him, so I have to go. You see, I've started to rely on you for things I should be relying on God for, and he's not putting up with it anymore. And i got to let you go. You're a distraction. I don't know what it is he's getting ready to do with me or my life, but you're in my way, and I have to let you go. And I look across the table, and and those blue eyes are crying, and he said, are you sure it's not another man? (laughs) I said, oh, God, no, that would be so much easier. (laughs) No, it's not another man. I know how to handle that. i got to let you go. And he said, so you're leaving me for God. (laughs) And I said, yes. And I cried for months. I walked in. I had made an appointment with the priest at our local Catholic church. I went in and I sat down across from him. And I was like, all right, here's the deal. God's calling me into a deeper relationship with him. I understand you have some spiritual tools in here that I'm not familiar with. I have no idea what this Christianity thing is about. So dunk me, sprinkle me, do whatever we got to do. 
but somehow I'm supposed to be hanging out with you people full time. And he was like, wow, and you're really happy to be here too, aren't you? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I tell him about this incredible conversation that God and I have been having, and I look across, and, and and the priest has tears in his eyes, and he said, my God, you are called to be with us. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, welcome to the Catholic faith. And I was like, yeah, okay. He said, well, it's going to take a year. He said, we're going to teach you what it means to be a Christian. And then we're going to teach you what it means, you know, what the Catholic Church teaches and all that. He said, and a couple different points along the way, he said, you're going, to have an op- you're going to have an opportunity to opt out. And I said, sir, you don't get it. Do you understand what I just gave up to be here? I am in this all the way. I am all in. And he said, okay, okay. And I started my formation. I started learning and deepening my understanding of God through the tenets of an organized religion. What I don't know is that Lee left me that night. He went and sat down across from his chaplain, and he said, Chaps, I don't know what's going on. He said, but Deb left me. And Chaps said, well, what did you do? He said, I didn't do anything. He said, well, what's going on? He said, she's going to become Catholic. And she said that I, ha- I don't have a relationship with God. And the chaplain said, well, don't, you don't have a relationship with God. And he said, well, I guess not. And he said, well, then you probably need to get one. He said, well, what am I supposed to do? And the chaplain said, well, you know, I think Deb's pretty great. I think I'd go to Mass if I were you. <laughs> and so he came and found me, and he and I walked through that, through that year together, through that formation year together. We joined the, the, the church together. But while we spent that year in formation, what we did is we developed a spiritual language that we were then able to use to communicate with one another. And it's a spiritual language that we did not have prior to that. And so when he and I would talk to one another, we could talk about our relationship with God. We prayed together in the morning. We read things. You know, he wasn't in Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't have the tools that we have to to develop a relationship with God. He had to get them from out there. And by following me into the Catholic Church, he started to develop a relationship with God. And I can honestly tell you that he really developed an incredible relationship with God. So we came into the church uh, at Easter in 2006. We married in June 2006. In August 2006, he left me to go do workups to go to war. He took a small team of guys into the streets of Iraq. Into Iraq, they lived in the streets of Fallujah outside the wire. They were training the, the Fallujah army. Um, in small unit tactics and all of that kind of stuff, and it was a very dangerous deployment. They were driving vehicle um, um, IEDs into where they were living, and it was just really, really tough. And every single time he would call me from over there, I was able to say things to him like, Honey, how can I pray for you? What can I raise up to God on your behalf? You see, lack of power, again, could have been my dilemma, but I was at that point, I was plugged into a power greater than all other powers, And I no longer had to wonder whether or not I was going to be able to get through this. I just had to go to that source of power every waking moment and say, God, I don't know how to do this. Please show me. And God would say, just stay close to me and do my work well. And I dove deeper and deeper and deeper into a relationship with a loving God. And Lee came home. And then his his deployment to Afghanistan got moved up. He snapped in as the XO of 27, which is 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. It's like being the vice president of a 1,200-man company. And they got all spun up, and they went to war, and they went to Afghanistan. They set up in Helmand Province, and they took the fight to the Taliban living outside the wire. They were establishing a new wire. 
And it was a very, very bloody and difficult deployment. And there were days when I didn't want to open another email from him because every time I opened an email from him, he was just tallying up the guys that he had lost. And whether that meant that they had died or they'd been removed from the field of battle due to life-changing injuries, I'm talking about full body burns and loss of limbs and just horrific, horrific things. I just didn't want to read about it anymore, but I read it every single time he sent it because I thought, I'm reading it, but he's living it. And I would go to my God and I would have these conversations and I would say, God, I know that what's going on over there is changing his heart. Please just wrap yourself around his heart. Keep him and his men in your loving arms. And if you see fit to allow him to come home to me, make me, make me the kind of wife I need to be to welcome a service member home from war. Because I don't know how to do that. And he came home. He came home. He came home physically, and it took him a while to come the rest of the way home. And every single day I would get up and I would pray, and I'd say, God, please give me the words, give me the thoughts, give me the actions. Let me follow your lead on this. And slowly Lee came home. He came all the way home. And just as he was starting to make decisions again and starting to stand on his own two feet really solidly again, he and I started, we started planning for the future. When, when you're married to someone who is, who is a, who's an infantry person who's going to war, you stop talking about the future. We had stopped talking about it. We had just started talking about the future again. I was working for the Marine Corps for the same base where he was stationed. I come home from work one night. I talked to him. He said, I'm right behind you, which means at least another hour. I got home. I fall asleep sitting up waiting on him to get home. I, I startle awake. I call his phone. He doesn't answer. No big deal. He's on his motorcycle. I wait a little while longer. I call, I call over to 2-7, and I said, has anybody seen Major Helton? And one of the captains gets on the phone, and after he and I, after some chiding back and forth, he tells me, he said, I'm so sorry. Debit Lee was killed on his way home from work. And I'm standing in my kitchen, and I'm looking down this hill, and I can see, I can see the emergency lights down at the bottom of the hill. And I said, did he almost make it? And he said, yes, he almost made it. And there are going to be those moments for each and every one of us sitting in this room where you're going to have to use the relationship that you currently have with God, not the relationship you wish you had, not the relationship you meant to build if you were just willing to let go of that, but you're going to have to use the relationship that you currently have with God and I am so incredibly grateful that I had been thrust into a deepening relationship with God for years before Lee was killed on his way home from work. I stood in that kitchen, I held that phone, and my very first thought that I can recall was, God, I can't breathe, I need you. And you see, by that time, I had been practicing the presence of God, and God for me was this incredible, incredible gold light, and he would wrap himself around me, and I would watch him sometimes in meetings, shooting from my heart to your heart and your heart to someone else's heart, and I was just living in the presence of God, and I was practicing that. And when I said those words, that gold light wrapped itself around me like a lover when he stands behind his beloved, and he whispered in my ear, and he said, I'm here. He didn't say it's going to be all right, this is a nightmare, you're going to wake up. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I'm here. Everybody came to my house that night. I sent out three text messages to, to various groups of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of them to my local group, one to an old home group in Beaufort, South Carolina, and one of them to, to uh, one of my girlfriends in New Orleans. I figured between those three it would spread like wildfire. You know how we are. <laughs> 
and I'm sitting outside and I'm sitting there with Lieutenant Colonel Reed and Lieutenant Colonel Reed was the commanding officer of 2-7. Lee was his executive officer. And he's sitting there and he'd sat up with me all night long and he is the picture-perfect poster Marine Corps infantry officer. His shirt stays tucked in even after he's been sitting down. I don't know how he does that. (laughs) There's never a hair out of place. He always says the right thing the right way with the right tone of voice. And everybody just wants to do whatever he says, even if it's wrong. And he and I are sitting out in front and we're talking and it's, you know, we've been up all night and the sun is starting to come up over the mountains. And I thought, I thought, okay, I said, John, there's something you need to know about me. And he said, okay. And I said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober for 22 years. And he said, okay. I said, John, what that means is that they're coming. (laughs) He said, okay. I said, John, they don't look like the people you're used to hanging out with. He said, okay, okay. And then he thought for a minute and he said, does this group have a leader? I said, oh, you'll know exactly who she is when she gets here. Trust me. And he said, okay, okay. And and so we sat there in silence. And I said, as soon as the sun comes up over the mountain, he said, I got it. And he's watching, you know, he's kind of staring off toward the driveway and I'm staring off this direction. And I watch his face. And his face, he kind of leans forward and he goes, I think they're here. (laughs) The very first member of Alcoholics Anonymous, three members of my home group, came that morning the very moment that the sun popped up over that mountain. They were walking up the driveway, and the very first member was my friend Matthew. Matthew is about six foot four. He is an enormous human. He, He had blue hair. He had multiple piercings. He wears clothes that don't match on purpose. And sometimes he'll shave half his face just to see if you're paying attention. And members of Alcoholics Anonymous just kept coming and coming and coming. And John sat down at an enormous breakfast table with me, ten members of my home group. And he sat there at the other end and he watched the arms of Alcoholics Anonymous wrap around me. And he watched the members of Alcoholics Anonymous hold me up and not let my feet touch the ground until I was ready to support myself. And I told him, I said, keep all the Marines and the Marine wives. I said, you can keep all of them at base and get the quarters ready for Lee's family when they come. I said, because AA's got me. And that was five years ago. And what I can tell you is this. I was buried in the heavy, heavy lifting of grief for a couple of years. I mean buried in it. You know, there's a place that you go when you grieve. It's this, it's this enormous vat of sadness. And it's an incredibly self-centered place. But that's the only place that you can go to really do this work and to get it done. And I told members of my home group, I said, look, I said, I'm going to go here and I'm going to sit in it and I'm going to be incredibly sad. Please don't be afraid of my sadness. I'm going to need you to come in and visit me there. I promise you don't have to drop anchor with me, but come in and sit here with me. And I taught them how to walk me through grief. And they walked with me every single step of the way. Well, I was traveling and talking like this when my husband was killed. I had a talk like 10 days after he was killed. He was killed on a Tuesday, and I was, you know, the next weekend, not that weekend, but the weekend following, I was out. I was going to Wisconsin. And one of my girlfriends in my home group said, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm going to go home and visit my family, and I'll meet you at that conference. And I'll stay in your room, 
and I'll make sure that you're able to get up and put on a dress. And every single place I traveled for a year, a member of my home group was with me. And they just propped me up and they were just there. They were just there and they helped me carry my sadness. And a couple of years down the line, I was finally, I, the heavy lifting of grief was, was coming off of me. And I was starting to feel some joy and I was starting to be able to move a little bit lighter. And I said, God, I sure would like to get out of the desert because I was living in the Mojave Desert in Southern California. So I sure would like to get out of the desert, both literally and figuratively. And, and, he, and he allowed me to get a transfer to New Orleans. And I lived in New Orleans, right in the city of New Orleans. I bought and restored a hundred-year-old house and painted it purple with red and white trim. It fits in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I ate and I ate and I ate and butter running up to my elbows and I was just off the chain and listening to live music every day and hanging out with members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Then I got promoted and I went to the Pentagon to serve the United States Marine Corps in a capacity up there that I never, ever, ever thought that I would ever reach. And there was a moment where I, was, where I got to have lunch with one of the general officers, a marine, a, a marine general. And I met him in this room, and he swiped me through the paneling. We really do that. So he swiped his card through the paneling, and a door opened. And I walked into the secretary of the Navy's private dining room. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, and I'm eating dinner, or I'm eating lunch, rather, with this marine general. And I start to cry a little bit. And he said, is there something wrong with your tuna? <laughs> And I said, no, sir, my, my tune is fine. And he said, then why are you crying? I said, sir, I'm just not sure how a girl like me ends up in a place like this. And he said, it probably has something to do with that God you talk about all the time, don't you think? And I said, yes, sir, probably so. And he said, then stop crying. They're going to think I'm yelling at you. And I can tell you that there are lots of moments where I can close my eyes, I see your faces, and I know how a girl like me gets to places like this. I get to be on a podium, sober, wide awake, properly attired, talking to you about how I establish and maintain a relationship with God. One quick story that might not make the CD. My pri- I know I'd run over a lot. My priest, who is a Franciscan, he was off in Chicago, and, and he was doing a retreat for a bunch of Franciscan sisters. And one of the sisters, she was 98 years old, and she was celebrating 80 years of being a Franciscan sister, full vows. And he sat with her very briefly, and he said, Sister, it's just amazing that you have been so faithful to God for 80 years. What an incredible thing to celebrate. And she pats him on his knee, and she said, Oh, Father. You have that all wrong. It is he who has had faith in me for 80 years, not the other way around. Thank you for having me.